When we think about the church in the book of Acts, it has that viral component to it. It has this viral component that it instantly, the message of the gospel as proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit, instantly affected people. I get chills even thinking about it as we read through the book of Acts, the impact that the Holy Spirit-empowered message of the gospel proclaimed through weak individuals and flawed individuals, how it had not just immediate impact, but lasting impact. And that's one of Luke's goals, is that the church, he wants to track the progress and growth of the church from this viral moment at Pentecost to its sustaining long-term, the fact that we're here today, uh, 2,000 years later, almost exactly 2,000 years, if you think of the beginning of the church in 33 AD with Jesus' ascension, and 40, 50 days later, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in that 33 to 35 AD range, depending on the dates. Um, Luke is really just concerned with giving us 30 years of history from the moment of Pentecost in the book of Acts uh, to what everybody believes is pre-70 A.D., certainly before the destruction of Jerusalem, right? They would have certainly written about that. So, so Luke is writing in maybe a 30 to 40 year window maybe 33, 35, somewhere in there, covering the material from that in the book of Acts. And he's, what takes place in that is remarkable. Follow along with me. We're going to take a a quick walk through Acts, so get your fingers ready. In Acts chapter 1, Luke gives us a thread of growth of the church through the whole book. A thread of growth through the whole book. Starting in chapter 1 and continuing all the way through chapter 28, Luke provides these summary statements that tracks the explosive growth of the church by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the apostles and the disciples of Jesus in the proclamation of the gospel. In Acts chapter 1, verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. So there's our baseline. We know we've got 11 apostles at this moment. Judas has already um, died, and there are 11 apostles Peter standing up among them and the disciple group, including uh, Mary and including uh, likely the brothers uh, of Jesus and other disciples that we'll read about and some we won't. But that number was about 120. But flip over to Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Here's another statement, a summary statement that Luke provides dropping these breadcrumbs all throughout the book of Acts summarizing the explosive growth of the church. 2.41. So those who received Peter, Peter's word after he preached in the power of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now this was Pentecost, and there were people from all around the known world, from every different language coming, and they all heard this message, and what would have happened? They would have received the gospel message, 3,000 of them, and they would have dispersed back out into their world. Flip over to Acts chapter 4, verse 4. Peter and John had been uh, interrogated after doing a miracle, and in Acts 4, 4, they um, had been interrogated by the council, 
But it says many, verse 4 of chapter 4, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. That's in the Jerusalem area. Flip over to Acts 5.14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Look at Acts 6-7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. There's a shift here. Before this, believers were added in Jerusalem, but now the language changes. It's not just believers being added, it's disciples being multiplied. This is the process of gathering in this disciple-making process where we're not just adding anymore. And any of you who have seen that illustration of uh, if somebody offered to, to um, add a dollar a week, you know, for so many years, how much would you have versus if somebody offered to give you one dollar one week and then multiply it times two. And, and the power of multiplication is rapidly uh, greater than the power of addition. And so believers aren't just being added to the Jerusalem church, but there is a follow-through of Matthew 28, 18-20, where Jesus said, go and make disciples, and a disciple-making process is taking place so that now disciples are being multiplied. Disciples are being multiplied. Look at Acts chapter 9. Uh, uh, another point there on Acts 6. A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's different when those who oppose Jesus now, priests from the temple are giving their life to Jesus as well. Acts 9.31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So now the language is different again. We have believers added. Then we have disciples multiplied. And now we have the church multiplying in Acts 9.31. Now look at Acts 12.24. After the death of Herod... But the word of God increased and multiplied. 16.5. In Acts 16.5, So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So now, from Jerusalem, the church center has moved to really... Antioch at this point in the book of Acts. And then from Antioch, we have the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas, and they're going around proclaiming the gospel. And now all these churches around the Greek world, the Greek area, have now experienced the gospel, and the churches are now being strengthened in the faith, and the churches are increasing in numbers daily. Acts 19.10 
This is after the Ephesian awakening. And if you're not aware of the Ephesian awakening, it is such a powerful move of the Spirit in the city of Ephesus that for two years, Paul taught daily having worship services every day for two years, and they outgrew the house churches and it grew into the hall of Tyrannus, and it became a, a, a huge event. And Acts 19.10 says, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, when we think of Asia, we think of the Middle East all the way to Japan, all the way to Siberia and North and Russia and, and all the way down to India. That was not Asia at the time. Asia would have been uh, modern day Turkey um, or that sort of an area. It was a, a region of Rome, of the Roman Empire called Asia. But it's still amazing in Acts 19.10 that all the residents of this entire region heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Look at verse 20 of Acts 19. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And sometime around Acts chapter 20, Paul wrote to the Romans, and he's getting ready to go to Jerusalem, but sometime right before he went to Jerusalem, uh, we see that in Acts 20. Um, take a second, flip over to Romans chapter 15. I know I'm making you work a little bit today. But hopefully you're seeing verses and passages that, uh, that are uh, allowing the Lord to, to help you trace this thread that will help you. In Romans chapter 15, Paul gives this note in verses 23 to 25. He says, I really want to come to you. I've been desiring to come to Rome. And in verse 23, he says, But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. You see what Paul's doing there? It's right before Acts 20. He hasn't left for Jerusalem. He told them he's about to go. So he fires off this letter to the believers at Rome. And he says, there's no more work for me in this region. The North Africa, Jerusalem, Antioch, Middle East, Europe region. There's no more work for me. Can you help me get to Spain? Do you see the incredible impact that the gospel has taken in those 25 years that, that Luke is preserving for us. Uh, and, and when we come back into Acts, look at Acts chapter 28. Paul is finally on his way to Rome. He sails to Rome. He gets shipwrecked in, in chapter 27. But in 28, he has arrived in Rome. And Luke gives us this summary statement in Acts chapter 28, verses 30 through 31. It says he lived there two whole years at his own expense in Rome, in a, in a prison, and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. 
That's the thread that Luke is careful to preserve for us in the addition of believers, the addition of disciples, the multiplication of disciples, then the multiplication of the church. Now let's get all the way back into Acts 1 where we'll spend the remainder of our time this morning. This is in obedience to the command of Jesus who in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, Wait for the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Luke writes that phrase, and then he traces that line throughout the entire book of Acts to show us how the gospel went from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. It's sometimes called the Acts of the Apostles. That's the name that might be written in your Bible as the title for the book. Luke didn't give it that title, but the Acts of the Apostles was attached to it. But, but does Luke really deal with the Acts of the Apostles? Who does it feature in the apostolic world? Well, certainly Peter, right? Through chapters 1 through 11 and, and, um, and through the death of James, uh, somewhere in there as well. In Acts um, 8 and 9, we read of Stephen being martyred and, and then uh, Paul being uh, converted in Acts 9. But it really, what about Thomas? What about Bartholomew? What about uh, Judas and Simon the Zealot? And there were 11 apostles in the beginning of Acts 1, but we don't know anything about any of them, where they went and what they accomplished. So the assumption is that they spread all around. The east, there is um, evidence that the gospel went out to India. Um, we know that the, um, the Ethiopian eunuch was converted in Acts 8. Uh, and so the gospel went south, deeper into Africa. All these apostles might have spread the gospel outward, but we're only tracing Peter and mostly Paul in the book of Acts. That's Luke's scope. So the title, the Acts of the Apostles, might seem a little bit misleading because we don't have a, a history of all the apostles and their work. Some people have called this the Acts of the Holy Spirit uh, as a better title. R.C. Sproul calls it the history of the acts of the Holy Spirit or the autobiography of the Holy Spirit. Those are some of the titles that we've heard here before. But let's look back at verses 1 through 3, and we'll spend the rest of our time there. Verse 1, chapter 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, and let's just stop there. We have two clues here. The first one is, this is a sequel, Right? Uh, he says, in my first book, and, and so this is his second book, Luke is, is writing a sequel. Another rabbit hole I went on this week. What are the best sequels uh, in movie history? Um, for me, maybe The Godfather Part Two was better than Godfather One. The Matrix I thought was pretty good. Uh, but in terms of um, growth from the box office, Jurassic World... Uh, was 353% of an improvement uh, over the original franchise films. Uh, Top Gun Maverick is right now 304% and counting is better than the original Top Gun. Uh, Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, is 
6% improvement. But the highest grossing sequels of all time, uh, the first place one was Avengers Endgame. In 2019, it came out, and it grossed worldwide over $2.8 billion as a sequel. We can't even imagine numbers like that, but, but on the list of here, all these great sequels, um, we see all their growth and, and how explosive they were. Um, Acts is a sequel. It's part two. It's part two. Flip over to Luke chapter one. I told you we wouldn't be flipping around much more, but, but one more time. Luke chapter one, just a couple of books back. This is the first book that Luke wrote, and he has a very similar introduction in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke 1, 1 through 4, he writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, and they have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. All right, so Paul wrote to Theophilus, the word means uh, lover of God, Theo, um, meaning God, and, and phileo. You know that word if you're, you're from this area, Philadelphia. Uh, a great example of brotherly love, right? Um, the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. Uh, Theophilus would have been a, the same thing, a lover of God, Theophilus, which has led some people to say, is this a, a fictitious person that, Paul, uh, that Luke is writing about? Theophilus? Um, it, was he just sort of under the title Theophilus writing to anybody who is a lover of God? Or was he commissioned by one wealthy patron named Theophilus? Or maybe that's a pseudonym for this guy. Um, but it, the evidence seems overwhelming that he was a real person and that he was really commissioned to uh, fund this trip, this 30-year uh, investigative um, activity that Luke undertakes to write an orderly account. He writes this orderly account so that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. And back to Acts chapter 1, now he says in the first book, Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. He's referring back to Luke, the gospel called Luke. And then now he's going to continue it up from the time Jesus was taken up and he'd given commands as to what to do next. That's what Acts is all about. All right, so there's a little bit about Acts as a sequel. That's a little bit about Theophilus, the lover of God, who was probably a wealthy patron who funded the writing of Luke and Acts. Let's just talk a little bit about who Luke is. I think if you understand who Luke is, it's going to give you an appreciation for um, him as, a, as an individual and his contribution to the church that we enjoy today. We know that he was a doctor. Um, and that he was beloved. In Colossians 4.14, it says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. He traveled with Paul. He probably wore many hats. 
Um, he, as a physician, he would have been incredibly valuable to a guy like Paul who seemed to get beaten up in every city he went to, right? If you have a personal physician traveling with you and, and in, in Acts, at the end of Acts, Paul is giving his testimony and he's, he's describing how he took the whip um, three times in his life and, uh, and he's, he's been shipwrecked and he's been abused. It's good to have a personal physician if you're a guy like Paul uh, who everywhere you go, you get beat up. Um, so he was a, um, a personal physician to Luke and um, to, uh, to Paul. But he wasn't just a doctor, and he wasn't just beloved. Uh, he was also a historian and an investigator. Think of him like those uh, embedded journalists. You remember in the Gulf War, it was kind of a new thing to have this um, live via satellite interviews with these journalists who were a part of the, you know, they were embedded with troops and squadrons, and they were going out. Luke is kind of like that, um, giving reports from the field. He knew what Philippi um, smelled like as he walked through the city. He knew what Ephesus was like. Luke didn't just describe these places. He walked in them. Uh, he was an investigator. Um, R.C. Sproul writes that Luke was an educated man. The style of Greek that he wrote in was the highest in terms of literary, literary, sorry, literary quality to be found in the entire New Testament. He provides evidence of his academic credentials. He's writing not just as a believer, but as a historian, basically saying, I take great care to trace the story from the beginning, from those who were there, to include in my account things that I either saw or that other people saw whom I interviewed. And so when you read the book of Luke... Uh, particularly in Luke 2 or 3, when he, he, you get an, an, an idea that he interviewed Mary. It's the, um, the idea is that Luke interviewed Mary because it says he, she treasured up all these things in her heart. He gives little eyewitness details like that that uh, only he would have known if he had spoken with people. Uh, R.C. Sproul continues, um, in the Gospel of Luke, we get more information about the birth of Jesus from any other source. And according to tradition, Luke personally interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus, to get her perspective on all the events surrounding the Annunciation and the Nativity. From the vantage point of the 21st century, we are dependent for our knowledge of, of antiquity on historians. We look to famous historians in the Roman world like Tacitus, Herodotus, Suetonius, and to the Jewish historian Josephus. Not necessarily believers, but all these historians help us shed light on what life was like in the Roman world. All these great historians of the ancient world, Sproul continues, have been subjected to the most rigorous scrutiny of critical scholarship. And he said that is no less true of Luke, because Luke wrote a gospel, and he wrote a history of the apostolic outreach of the early church. There is a sense in which he has been subjected to closer scrutiny from a secular perspective than any other biblical biographer. Secular archaeologists and academia esteem Luke as the most accurate historian of the ancient world. That's attested to by uh, schools. When they want to know what sailing was like in the ancient world, they would have gone to Luke and they would have 
discussed geography and his knowledge of maps and his knowledge of the winds and the ta- three winds and the, uh, the tavern and the, uh, the Roman area. He would have given them information that would have helped them. As a matter of fact, in, in the early 20th century, a British scholar by the name of William Mitchell Ramsey, who was skeptical about Christianity, traced the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul as recorded in the books of Acts. He was skeptical and so he wanted to go to all the places that are described in Acts. And so uh, as he traced the missionary journeys, he looked for evidence in the landscape and in the ruins and in the titles of local rulers or or magistrates in foreign cities. Um, And it says he started out a skeptic and ended up a believer because he was overwhelmed by the evidence that he was able to uncover. All the stones were crying out that every title of every magistrate that Luke recorded in the book of Acts was verified by the turning over of the shovel and archaeological evidence. Likewise, the descriptions and the accounts of the towns were just as Luke had described them. Now listen, that's a long way to say Luke was an accurate historian. Not just respected from believers, but you can take Luke and acts, and you can present it, and, and it can be widely received in academic circles and in the secular world, as he is one of the foremost historians of this time period and in this region, which is good for us because we look to Luke to give us insight about our faith, about who Jesus was and who the followers of Christ were. And that's also what Luke was. Luke was a follower of Jesus. We don't know when he was converted. Uh, I don't know that he ever met Jesus face to face. Um, But he was a believer and a fellow gospel laborer. In Acts chapter 16, verse 10, Paul sees the vision of the Macedonian man. And 16.10 says, When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Luke is a fellow worker, working with Paul in the proclamation of the gospel. Philemon, verse 24 says, um, Luke is one of my fellow workers. Luke was a, a believer, a historian, and a physician. It's incredible what he was able to accomplish. But now let's get on to, uh, from some of that background information, into maybe um, some of the, 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 the more applicable things to us today. Look at the end of verse 1. He says, In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So we know that all that Jesus began to do and teach, Luke is referring to the gospel known as Luke. But now there's this 40-day period between the resurrection and the ascension, right? From the time Jesus was raised from the dead until the day he rose up, which we're going to get into next week. There's a 40-day period there. And then there's a 10-day waiting period between the time Jesus ascended to the coming of the Holy Spirit in the upper room. We call that Pentecost, right? Because it's 50 days after the Passover was this Jewish festival. What do you think those 40 days with the resurrected Jesus was like? 
That 40-day period when Jesus was coming in and going out from among the disciples, we learned that he uh, broiled and cooked fish and ate it. We learned also, so he had a physical body. He told Thomas, put your finger here and put your hand in my side. So we know that they saw him, experienced him, ate with him, touched him. First John says, that which we have seen with our eyes and heard with our ears, that whom we have touched. In all those ways, they're giving physical evidence that Jesus had a body and that he was with them, and that he was experiencing this time with them, this 40-day period with the resurrected body. It also says that Jesus was able to go in and out of rooms without using doors, all right? Um, the door was locked, and the disciples were all in a room, and then Jesus appears, and then he disappears. So he had this um, um, incredible resurrected body that was able to move in a different way than our bodies could, defying the laws um, of natural science. But Jesus didn't just wow them with these sort of appearances. He also taught them. He was able to veil his who he was. You remember on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, the two disciples on the day of the resurrection, are walking about a seven-mile walk to the village of Emmaus, and Jesus walks up next to them. And they begin to talk to him, and, and he says, why are you down? And they say, uh, are you just new to Jerusalem? Don't you know everything that's happened? And they explain to him what happened. And then it says in Luke 24, verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And probably one of the most amazing verses, if you want to let your imagination run is Luke 24 27 and beginning with Moses and all the prophets he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself can you imagine a seven mile walk with Jesus where he says in Exodus or in Genesis or in Leviticus, or in Numbers, or Deuteronomy, or Isaiah, or the Psalms, when David says this, or in Ruth, or in Esther, and, and he is just walking book by book by book, telling them that pointed to the Messiah, and that pointed to the Messiah, and that pointed to the Messiah. That is a master class in Old Testament theology, uh, and in, in who the Messiah would be. And even after that seven-mile walk, they get into uh, the place where they were going, and, and Jesus comes in. He pretends like he's going further, but they urge him. They go in, and Jesus breaks bread and gives thanks, and it says at that moment their eyes were opened, and they realized who it was, and then Jesus disappears, and they say, didn't our hearts burn within us while he walked with us by the way and he opened our eyes to see the scriptures? Can you believe that time of teaching? Jesus instructed, we read in Acts 1-3, that he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, and speaking to them about what? What was the content of his message? It might be helpful to note what Jesus didn't do or say. We don't have any record of him healing anybody in those 40 days. We don't have any record of him visiting 
children's hospitals or adult hospitals. We don't have any record of him abolishing uh, slavery in the Roman system. We don't have any record of him inventing anything. We don't have any record of him feeding the hungry. We don't have any record of him um, giving to the poor or raising money. We don't have any evidence of him curing diseases. Jesus, during that 40-day period, didn't teach on health and wellness and uh, wealth or nutrition or world orders or government or any sort of scripture that we should use and shouldn't use. There was nothing that he talked about other than the gospel and the kingdom of God. It's the most important topic that Jesus in his last 40 days filled their mind with his teaching about the gospel and his kingdom. Julie sent me a text the other day that we can sometimes fall into the trap of shouting where the Bible whispers and whispering where the Bible shouts. Jesus did not stand up and proclaim a health and wealth gospel. Jesus did not come and proclaim how to get wealthy or have your best life now or your best marriage now. Or He was concerned with the gospel and the kingdom of God. And it was a burning message because he knew that through the gospel, people could be reunited and saved and redeemed and born again into the family of God to, to participate in this mission of making disciples who can make disciples who can make disciples. And we often fall into a trap of shouting where the Bible whispers and whispering where the Bible shouts. Jesus shouted the gospel that he died for our sins, making payment to God on our behalf, that he was resurrected, showing that God accepted his payment on our behalf, and that he commanded his disciples to go and make disciples by proclaiming the gospel message to the world. Jesus went to great lengths to verify that he was dead and that now he is alive and resurrected. What can we do for us today in application of this? I think that's a good place to start is that we need to evaluate what message is burning on our lips today. And you've got plenty of stuff to shout about. You can talk at the top of your lungs about vaccines or about government or taxes or all sorts of things. You can scream these messages to the point where you're now whispering the gospel, but elevating truths that were never meant to be shouted. The Bible might be quiet on a subject that you love to talk about. It might be a good spot for us to evaluate what was the message on Jesus' lips in the most important days of his earthly existence. It was the gospel. It was the gospel message. And if that's not the major message on your lips, if you're elevating teachings that the Bible is largely silent about, but you're passionate about it, and you're blasting everybody on social media about all these other side things that you care about, but, but the gospel never really comes from your mouth, or when it does, it's so tainted by the angry, contentious messages that you have about our culture. Listen, we are in a dark culture, but that's... No surprise. What do you think the Roman world was like? Do you think America is any different than the Roman world? Do you think the president of our United States is worse than the Roman Emperor Nero? Listen, the backdrop by which Romans 13 submit to the government and all those kinds of things were written was written against about Rome. The very emperors who would 
raise Christians up on and use them as streetlights in Rome. Jesus didn't preach a condemning message as much as he preached the gospel of life. Evaluate your message. That's the first point of application that we might get from Acts 1, 1 through 3. A second point of application. Aren't you grateful that Luke carefully took the time to write down and preserve the work of God that took place in that 30 years? Nobody else really did. There wasn't a history. Luke was the only one that had survived. I thought about this this week because I don't have anything written. Nothing in my grandparents' own handwriting. Not my great-grandparents. I hear a story or two. No journals. I remember in the days uh, before Julie's grandfather, uh, an incredible character uh, as the sheriff of Craighead County in Jonesboro, Arkansas. We used to go, and every time we would go, and maybe spend eight to ten times I spent with him, and every time we would go, he would just tell these incredible stories. And everyone kept saying, we got to write these down, we got to record you telling these stories. And if I heard that once, I heard that a hundred times, that he had these great stories. But to my knowledge... He never wrote down anything. There was no journal. Um, there was no record. Listen, one point of application for you might be today. Write down, record, or journal the activity of God's work in your life. Psalm 78 verse 4 says, We will not hide these truths from our children, but we will tell them to the next generation all the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. Let me encourage you to write down somewhere for the next generation the work of God in your life. Answered prayers, struggles, temptations, victories, the different seasons that you're going through, seasons of grief, seasons of doubt, seasons of joy, seasons of uh, what seems to be darkness, seasons of fruitfulness, seasons of attack, and seasons of peace. You see all those rhythms in the book of Acts. Let me encourage you, mom and dad, uh, young person, get a journal and begin the discipline, the spiritual discipline of chronicling the work and the redemptive activity of God in your life. Even if it's just private, I've got stacks of journals, many of which I, I contemplate burning because sometimes they're a little bit vulnerable. Others at times when I would be more than happy to show because there are great seasons of victory, but, but including an entire record of your walk with God could be invaluable to your children and your grandchildren and to the next generation. And I'll close with this third point of application. Don't despise small beginnings. Don't despise small beginnings. Acts um, 1, uh, we read it earlier, verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. Can you imagine 120 people? One of the 12 apostles had killed himself after betraying their leader. Their leader was about to leave. It was about to be gone. This, did not, this was not a slam dunk from the apostles' point of view. But by the end of Acts, we have the entire region saturated with the gospel and churches begun in a 30-year period. But what a small beginning. 120 people in an upper room. 
I've been thinking about this a lot, small beginnings. It was 10 years ago today, in September of 2012, that this little church plant, Ridgeline, was meeting under a tree um, at the Souderton Park. Uh, September, just a, a, maybe 75 of us counting every single kid, every single nose, maybe 75 of us. Uh, just gathering, not even launched yet officially. And we had met at that park for about six months. And every single Sunday, we wondered if the rain would hold off. And every single Sunday, we enjoyed a rain-free Sunday where no sound system, no speakers. I have a picture of me at a bounce house a few months before that, uh, preaching off of a trash can in birthday party room A at Pump It Up on County Line while our kids thought, Church was the greatest thing ever. They went and bounced for two hours, you know, while the parents did core team and, uh, and uh, church planting training. Um, those humble beginnings, uh, when I look today at what God has done through this congregation and uniting Rock Hill and Ridgeline and bringing in a third group of people who weren't previously a part of either of those congregations, and I think of all the turmoil and the difficulty and the struggle that has taken place in our culture over the last 10 years, there is not a doubt in my mind that the Lord, from gathering under a tree at the Souderton Park, without any idea of where we would be to today, being able to experience new believers and baptisms and um, seeing children who weren't even alive, you know, being uh, part of the fellowship. All of these things that God has done in this last 10 years have been um, so enriching and such a season of reflection for me about the faithfulness of God in spite of our own brokenness and many times when we stumbled along the way. Zechariah chapter 4, whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. The prophet was telling them, the foundation of the new temple that you're building, it doesn't look good. For many people, it was not impressive and they wept. But he said, don't despise the day of small things. Because there will be a day in which you will rejoice when you see the plumb line hung and the temple expanded. We have a tendency to despise small things. Do you despise small things? Are you, maybe God has given you some sort of a hope or a promise and it seems so distant, so unavailable, or maybe um, there is a hope that you carry, or maybe there is a, a business that you're starting, or maybe there is a, a family that you're a part of and, and things don't seem quite put together. Don't despise the day of small things, but, but know that God can take by the power of the Holy Spirit and what He did for the kingdom in exploding the gospel outward and the church outward began in very humble ways. 120 people in the upper room. 1 Kings chapter 18. Elijah had prayed and there was no rain and there was, no, uh, there was famine. And for three years, it was like that. But then he defeated the prophets of Baal. And in 1 Kings chapter 18, he told Ahab, um, there's going to be rain. And there hadn't been rain for three years at all. And everything was dry and everything was dusty. And he, he gets up on top of the mountain and he says he put his head between his knees and he began to pray. And seven times he said to his servant Gehazi, go up and look toward the sea. And every time Gehazi went up and looked, he said, there is nothing. And he continued to pray, continued to pray. And then Gehazi came back the seventh time and he reported, 
Behold, there is a little cloud like a man's hand rising from the sea. And then verse 45, a little while later, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind and there was great rain and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Maybe for you, the kingdom of God seems so far and so distant. The gospel may be seemingly insignificant in your life. Jesus compared the kingdom of God to a seed, a small seed that grew to a large tree. Don't despise small beginnings, especially when it relates to the gospel and to the kingdom. Your efforts in sharing the gospel with somebody might seem insignificant and small right now, but eventually they will have kingdom payoff by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for the opportunity for us to explore these first three verses um, in the, the book of Acts. We pray that you would use this book, uh, that you would use it to strengthen us and to equip us, to help us be united as we seek to live on mission together as a gospel community, that when people see the activity of God in this congregation, that they would be touched and moved by your activity here, by your faithfulness here. Uh, And we pray that we would... um, that we would put these things into practice, that we might be like the man uh, who did not build his house on sand, but that dug deep and applied your word, therefore being a man who uh, built his house on the foundation of solid rock. Help us to put these things into practice for your glory and for your majesty today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.